Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I am talking to you today from Chicago, where I came for a wonderful conference that the ARC of the U.S. puts on every year. It's the Summer Leadership Institute, and um, it is almost all folks who are leadership at ARCs around the country. But there are a few people like me and two of our team members who come who are supporters and and, uh, allies and um, work in this space. Uh, We definitely work in, um, not in the nonprofit arena, although we are hopeful that we will be doing that soon as we are, you know, investing in and continuing to create new models and methods for bringing information, support, and advocacy tools to the disability community. So it's been awesome here. Um, The talent in the room is just mind-blowing, and we are so grateful that we get to be a part of all of this, that we are talking about what's going on nationally, within people's states, and then also down to the local level, because, you know, local is where it's happening. And that is incredibly important. So we've had an opportunity to talk about some great things, more about that next week. Um, There's a lot happening that we're hoping will, you know, continue to uh, push forward in the fall with our legislature. Today, though, as I'm sitting here in the middle of a heat wave that is impacting the entire country, I am so grateful that I was able to interview and talk with Alex Guinness. So Alex is the director of a program um, or company that he started called Accessible Climate Strategies, but he's also recently just joined as deputy director sustain our abilities. So if you would like to check out what's going on with him after the podcast, we will have all of his contact information in the show notes. It's so important that we're having this conversation today. So what we talked about was the intersection between climate change and disability. Things like the brownouts that are happening everywhere, like fires that are starting that really threaten the lives of so many, Um, crazy hurricanes and torrential downpours and high winds, all kinds of things that are, you know, just having such a major impact on individuals in the disability community. We talked about being prepared, having risk strategies, but really the most important piece of our conversation was the fact that disability um, disability protagonists, I guess you wanna say, um, people in our community, we don't have a seat at the table and we almost certainly do not have an accessible seat at the table to participate in the conversations about how these events are being handled and 
the, you know, larger conversation of, you know, what are we going to do? Whether you believe that climate change is real or not, doesn't matter. The fact is extreme weather conditions impact our community at a much greater level than the general population. And it's extremely scary. So um, if you live like me with a family member who requires electricity and running water for um, life-sustaining treatment, like my Elizabeth did for so many years, you really need to be prepared. You need to think about how this is impacting you. We saw with Hurricane Katrina, for example, people could not get out. How do you get evacuated from the towers during 9-11 when you're in a wheelchair? Um, There was a harrowing story uh, one year when I went to a, a nursing conference, actually, from a nurse that was assisting a man who was physically challenged. He worked on one of the very high floors at, in one of the Twin Towers, and she went to work with him every day to assist him with his care needs. The firemen came and needed to carry this gentleman down because she waited with him for help and you know, said, go on ahead of me. I'm going to carry this gentleman down the stairs on my back. Um, Because of course, there's no way to get out when you're in a wheelchair. The fireman and this gentleman perished. She lived. The trauma of that for her, the, the just, she never went back to nursing. um, And just the horrific story, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. We were all bawling, hundreds of us, for the loss of life and also the devastation of the the, knowing that she left her charge there. So these are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. You know, um, I think that this is important for each and every one of you listening. And I think you should share this podcast with as many people far and wide, as you know, impacted in the disability community, because being prepared for these sorts of events and risks is just, it could be life or death. And and that's it. I'm so grateful that Alex was able to, uh, to be interviewed and in the middle of this heat wave and the wildfires and the extreme weather that we're having right now, it couldn't be more timely. So thank you. As always, please let me know what you think of this podcast, of all the podcasts. Uh, We would love your ratings and reviews. And if you know somebody who you think would enjoy this or needs the information, please do share. So today we are talking about survival in a very real way with Alex Guinness. So I am so excited to have Alex on the podcast. I read an article last year in September um, in Disability Scoop about climate change and the impact it has on people with disabilities. And then I went back and found the podcast that he was on from the previous year in 2020 and listened in on that. Um, That 
podcast, I will, uh, I'll have a, some show notes about it. It was with the World Institute on Disability. It was fascinating. This is something that I have been fascinated with from day one with my daughter, Elizabeth. And we absolutely had our weather emergencies and other kinds of emergencies. And, you know, these are things that we would think about every day. I still think about them with an aging parent, with other people with disabilities in our lives that we care for and are, you know, are part of their team. And so, Alex, I am really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So in talking about all of this, I I was really fascinated that um, this was your area of interest. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be so interested in climate change and the intersection with disability? Yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, this is going back a couple of decades now at this point, close to, but uh, when I, I, I had my spinal cord injury when I was 16, um, and that was 2004, uh, and started college in 2006 uh, with a focus on political science and ended up taking a course on climate change and uh, really just opened my eyes to the importance of all of this and um, uh, had... Um, uh, some things that I learned that really impacted me saying that this is not something we're going to stop anytime soon. And Mm -hmm. there's a chance that it's going to spiral. And here I was in 2006, 2007, 2008, and the conversation, the discourse in the public was all about stopping and reversing climate change. And I felt a little bit like Chicken Little over in the corner saying, hey, you know what, it's going to get, you can do whatever you want, but it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. Um, and uh, through college, through grad school, was uh, really interested in climate change. And after school, ended up uh, uh, working at a consulting and policy firm that focused on energy storage technologies, so batteries that get plugged into the grid. Wow. Uh and uh, these, you know, are really useful for um, helping to, say, bring solar panels online so that on a partly cloudy day with clouds going in and out, you can steadily push out the right amount of energy that you want because mm. uh, these batteries are, you know, what we call it firming the grid. Um, and in the back of my mind, here I am, someone with a disability working on this topic and thinking, my goodness, this is so important to me as somebody with a disability, uh, as somebody who uses a power wheelchair uh, to be able to have stable electricity. And uh, with some of my previous things I'd done uh, in the disability community, I was really involved with activism. Um, Nobody made the conversation around how much we need uh, accessible and stable infrastructure. Um, And uh, the, 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 uh, um, the need for that, especially in a changing world, in one where we have more climate change, where we're bringing on new technologies onto the grid, um, where there's new transportation systems that are being built out. And uh, I started writing a blog uh, called New Earth Disability, and that was back in uh, 2013, uh, 2014, uh, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
pivoted over, left that firm and started at the World Institute on Disability, uh, which is where you heard the earlier podcast. And um, we expanded uh, New Earth Disability into being a project uh, dedicated to a lot of public education. So uh, here I am, I've done, you know, assorted public speaking and sat on panels and done podcasts and really appreciate being here uh, to try to spread the word about that. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's how I got into it. Um, and uh, the more that I learned, the more that I looked at it, um, the more that it spread out where the conversation was beyond the electric grid, where it went beyond uh, disaster readiness, um, oh. where it went beyond just a certain subset of disabilities, uh, that I and my colleagues realized how really all-encompassing uh, this problem is, because you could point at, uh, you know, storms, and then, you know, speaking as someone with a spinal cord injury, people with spinal cord injuries, and say, here's the experience of people with spinal cord injuries during, uh, you know, right. during storms. Um, there's going to be climate-related displacement, um, which uh, you know is really unfortunate, and I think something that we're uh, um, not prepared for uh, nearly mm-hmm. enough. Uh, and you can look at that and say, well, you know, people with disabilities, all, all sorts of disabilities, um, don't get equal treatment in immigration proceedings around jobs because we have ableism in the employment sector Um, and uh, uh, you know uh, certain visas are uh, limited to people doing uh, different types of work and people with disabilities are frequently excluded from that so um, it it I realized how much it touched the whole world yeah um, and uh, start oh my god and and transportation and healthcare and delivery systems for basic needs, just everything, everything. Yeah. It, climate change is changing the world around us. And there are, you know, infinite experiences of people with different types of disabilities and we, we need to address all of them. So that was that, that's how I got into it. Uh, that was a little bit of a long uh, explanation, but. No, I love it. I'm so fascinated and this is so, so important. Oh my gosh. Uh, listeners, please, this is so important. And, you know, maybe once we get into this a little bit, we might need to have part two of this conversation on strategies, but uh, because I know we're going to run out of time. Um, You know, I I wrote down some things. First of all, you formally started, I think it was in 2019 or 2020, a group called Accessible Climate Strategies. And is that still going? I know that you're now with Sustain Our Abilities, but do you still maintain the other organization? Yeah, I do. It's uh, it's a consulting firm. Um, so it's, uh, um, you know, when we talk about, say, employment for people with disabilities, uh, I could have been, uh, after I left the World Institute on Disability, I was in contact with a sort of different people that I'd worked with before. And um, did kind of, you know, consulting work with them, but it's nicer to have a business, a small business, a sole proprietorship to, to handle the finances. Um, sure. You know, through them, I still do uh, disaster readiness trainings. I partner with the state of California on um, training uh, assorted county and state and city staff to work in disaster shelters um, Red Cross disaster shelters and provide accommodations to people with disabilities that way. So okay. um, that's kind of what I do through um, uh, accessible climate strategies. Uh, but our 
my my main focus right now really is sustain our abilities uh that nonprofit and that's where you're the deputy director now that's right uh as of uh, all of a couple of weeks ago um, this <laughs> is pretty new to me yep well it's a pretty exciting group i want to chat with you about that in just a minute but i wanted to just talk about um a statement that was made on your website living with a disability makes people more vulnerable to the risks of disasters and extreme weather. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about acknowledging the risks, making sure that the entire world, not just the disability community is talking about the risks and that we are coming up with strategies and solutions. And part of that is you said that, you know, people with disabilities need a seat at the table to be part of these conversations, but it also needs to be an accessible seat at the table. So I thought that was just brilliant. Can you talk about that a little bit about how we are not being included? And when we are included, it's difficult for us to engage. So when you look at the history of climate activism and the narrative around climate activism. Uh, there's a lot of either explicit or um, uh, implicit ableism right. that happens in that sphere. Um, there are, uh, you know, taking a step back, I, I went to school uh, at UC Berkeley. I lived in Berkeley uh, for about 15 years before just recently moving to Oakland. And there are a whole lot of anti-growth uh, kind of old school hippies and a lot of old school hippie narratives that are happening um, over in that town. And uh, there's the idea that um, the, 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 the problem with humanity is that it's overly industrialized with too much concrete and we need to have a return to nature and then that will help uh, solve um, climate change, uh, that we really need to kind of shrink our overall environmental footprint. And uh, that's all good and well, but people with disabilities uh, rely on our social systems, our infrastructure right. in ways that able-bodied people don't. So I'm not going to go and live in the woods without a modern healthcare system. Right. You know, there, there's no, there's no wheelchair pathways <laughs> in the woods. Um, I, I've, I've gone to natural park, national parks, and it's all good and well, but I can't access the whole park because the hiking trails, not all of them are accessible. Right. Um, right. So what are we going to do if we try to build a world that way? It's just not going to work for people like me. Um, for other people with disabilities, all sorts of different disabilities. Um, so in that sense, we, we, we kind of need to address that head on and say, hey, uh, you know, turn yourselves around, be realistic. We need to work within the confines of the modern system. Otherwise, you're just going to, you know, you're not going to be able to call a bunch of humanity. And that's actually a really bad idea. So let's try to keep people alive and healthy and happy and and maintain a modern healthcare system and a certain amount of government stability and social services. Um, that narrative wasn't happening. And that was being um, kind of left behind um, in a lot of what people were talking about. Uh, and people with disabilities within, uh, within activist areas, I think 
um, stayed away from climate change because of kind of the uh, overly able-bodied perspective on it. Right. Um, and I found that in my work at the World Institute on Disability, especially um, being plugged into a lot of climate change related conferences and local organizations, that I was almost always the only person uh, who used a wheelchair that was present at those events. Um, and uh, one of few people who openly presented as having a disability, you know, someone who's blind and has a white tip cane or, or you know, other things you're going to be able to say, oh, that person has a disability as opposed to, say, someone with um, uh, a learning or um, psychological disability where it's an invisible disability. And I was uh, pretty much the only one during a lot of these meetings that would raise my hand and say, hey, you know, let's consider uh, people with all sorts of different disabilities as, yeah. say, the Adapting to Rising Tides program here about sea level rise in the Bay Area was going on. Um, so I, I, I've just seen it firsthand how there aren't enough people with disabilities in that space. And then also firsthand how when I did speak up, in those spaces, a lot of people kind of turned their head and realized that this was something they hadn't been considering. Right. Um, and it's it's just so powerful to instead of having a group of disabilities on a group of disabilities, a group of people with disabilities yeah. on the outside of the climate sphere saying, hey, you know what, pay attention to us. Um, and we need climate justice for the disability community, um, it's even more impactful to simply attend those meetings and uh, uh, insert yourself into those groups and have those conversations within meetings, within formal areas, uh, while you know uh, grabbing a bite or a coffee or a drink mm -hmm. um, after the event itself, socializing with people, going to meetups, because that that's one of the most powerful ways to change the conversation and to bring your friends uh, with disabilities yeah. to attend those meetings also. That's cool. It, it oh, seems that, so, no, go ahead, Alex. Sorry, I just wanted to answer the last thing because you asked about how to make it accessible. Um, uh, there, uh, a lot of this is on, you know, climate change groups and organizations to step up and make their meetings uh, um, universally accessible to make it so that there is the option of either having an ASL interpreter or closed captioning on a bunch of presentations in person uh, on the registration form to have simply a checkbox check that says, will you need any reasonable accommodations at this event? To have events that are close to public transit stops because people with disabilities disproportionately don't have access to personal vehicles in their household. I mean, these are statistic um, things yeah. that you can find um, uh, through government data. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's valuable for people with disabilities who are aware of the accommodations that they and their friends need uh, to go to those organizers and leaders and say, hey, you know, put this checkbox on the form um, and get some funding to pay for a um, an ASL interpreter if you need it, because that's what you need for universal access and inclusion. Right. right. So what I was thinking when, 
when I was listening to you and also when I was reading a lot of your posts was that, you know, the disability community is still being treated as a special interest group. And yet, as you mentioned, and as we know from statistics, we're talking about 20% of the population. We're just people. We're just people who live here in your community, in our community. And so by right, we should be part of the conversation, not as a special interest, but as a human being and a constituent and a member of the community. And yet it just doesn't seem to get there. You know, we still haven't breached that, that gap in thinking, call it ableism, call it what you will. Do you see any change happening on that front at all? I see the special interest group getting larger and better organized, uh, which I think is valuable in its own right. Um, I see that people with disabilities have gotten enough basic civil rights that folks with disabilities when you know first of all are able to go to college in the first place yes. right and then if they do go to college don't necessarily focus on things that are immediately pertinent to the disability community um you know uh, uh they are able to branch out and get into uh sustainable technologies right some sort of engineering program that focuses mm -hmm. on solar panels they're able to get into um, things like I did, human geography and public policy, and um, then get hired by um, organizations and entities um, and get kind of woven in there. So I think that the opportunities for more direct inclusion, um, as opposed to being a special interest group, is uh, there and it's valuable. Um, there's legal frameworks that um, certainly more uh, climate change related organizations need to focus on. And mm -hmm. I think that the disability community can push for more, um, where say anything that receives federal funding needs to provide um, equal access to people with disabilities, right? Through section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and being I... able to say, you're putting on this event, make sure that it's accessible, make sure that it includes us. Um, it's understandable and there's value in people with disabilities being a constituency that has mm -hmm. a certain amount of focus. Um, I think that recently the constituency groups that get spoken about uh, when people are talking about climate justice, those groups are um, racial groups, right? Um, it and other certain categories, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, people of color, uh, they talk about uh, seniors, they talk about immigrants, people with limited English proficiency, and people with disabilities. These are kind of the, the um, if you were to put a technical term on it, the quote unquote vulnerable groups. Mm -hmm. um, and the term, by the way, the term vulnerable is kind of a a point of contention sure. um, in a lot of the disability community. And yeah, it goodness, can be very, can... very triggering. I know. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, it, it's, it's good and bad to be on that list. 
Um, I think it's good because it provides recognition and also because there's more focus on climate justice. So once you're on that list, um, you get a little bit more attention. Um, I think we are out of all of the groups on that list, probably um, somewhere aligned with seniors as being less uh, um, recognized and receiving less uh, um, attention, accommodation, uh, policy tweaks uh, mm -hmm. to meet our needs. Um, and that's disappointing. Uh, I wish that I had answered that question better. Uh, yeah. but, you know, it, it's, you it's, we are still, great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're still a constituency group. Um, I, I, I just think it's about the narrative. It's about also, in addition to you saying 20% of the population saying 20% of the population plus our family, friends, uh, caregivers, right. um, uh, other networks uh, that, um, you know, directly interact with us. Uh, you know, a caregiver that relies on us for a paycheck yes. <laughs> um, as we rely on them for um, uh, independent living support. Um, that if, yeah. if, if any of this, we allyship and community are just as important as uh, the people with disabilities ourselves. I could not agree more. Some of the things that you were talking about um, in your new organization that sustain our abilities that you're working are, on are, and I'm just going to list them out here, scale, climate adaptation, housing and transportation and other infrastructure, disaster readiness and response, financial literacy and empowerment. I love that. And public education and engagement, because without those last two things, we really will make no advancement in the other things. Yeah. So um, these are such noble goals and huge, um, you know, so I want to talk to you about some of them as much as we can today. I saw that one of your strategies related to all of this is building personal climate resilience. I put that in quotes because I love that. Can you just explain what that means, building personal climate resilience? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to get into a little bit of politics first, and then I'll answer the question a little more directly. Sure. Um, uh, you know, within um, the advocacy community um, and just policymakers, there's been kind of this uh, broad recognition that people with disabilities have gotten left behind um, and under-recognized and under-accommodated uh, with pretty much everything climate change. But uh, the one that's really stood out uh, relates to natural disasters. Absolutely. Um, and uh, there, um, uh, you know, people with disabilities don't have access necessarily to uh, uh, safe and timely and rapid transportation to evacuate ahead of a disaster, um, mm -hmm. especially a fast moving one like a wildfire or uh, gosh, out here in California, we had a spillway of a dam collapse 
uh, partway in 2017, and they had to evacuate 200,000 people um, because mm-hmm. a, a hundred foot wall of water would come downstream if, if the dam collapsed. Oh my and God. we have stories of people with disabilities that were stuck at home and had caregivers coming for half their shifts, rushing back to this potential, you know, catastrophic floodplain disaster zone, and then going back outside of town to be with their families. Um, right. in some sort of evacuation shelter. and Because just to, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but just to make sure that people understand what we're saying, it's a, it's a compound problem yeah. because you can't get people out, but also the caregivers can't get in. So people are so at risk. I mean, if you look at what happened during Katrina, for example, that, and that was years ago. And, you know, we're still we're still not learning our lessons about how to, how to deal with natural disasters and people with disabilities, but I digress. I'm sorry. Continue, Alex. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I mean, no, that's, I I wouldn't even call that a digression. Goodness. That's um, yeah. It's, it's what, what you find is that um, despite seeing these clear kind of failings of the system, uh, Katrina onward, um, Mm -hmm. that government has only done so much to safeguard people with disabilities, right? We we have the program like, you know, functional assessment service teams out here in California, the one where I mentioned that I I do some trainings for the state um, around that. Uh, Other states don't have that. They don't have trained specialists that can go into Red Cross shelters. And actually, teams from California have gone to the East Coast after hurricanes um, mm-hmm. to help out in their shelters. So um, there's a shortcoming that hasn't been met at the federal level and is being kind of picked up by states along the way. Um, but it, it just shows how um, government policy from warning to preparation to evacuation to sheltering to recovery is not appropriately serving people with disabilities. Um, There is a very vocal and justified um, segment of the disability community and pieces of disability advocacy that say, you know, at this point, this is on government needs to, you know, get themselves in order um, and help us because, people with disabilities are already financially stressed. Uh, You know, we are Mm -hmm. already transportation limited. Um, Many of us, including in this tight labor market, are having a hard time finding caregivers and legislation to, uh, you know, that the Better Care, Better Jobs Act over at uh, the federal level is stuck. Um, And there's $400 billion to train caregivers that's not there. And there's all of these other problems hitting the disability community that come out of politics um, that people just feel abandoned and want more recognition and support. Um, There's uh, a very unfortunate reality that comes from that where uh, communities on the ground and individuals with disabilities um, have unfortunately been left to pick up the slack. Uh, where government has failed um, and uh, need to do the baseline preparations for disaster readiness um, for what they'll do after a disaster 
um, right. and do that while having, on the one hand, extra, you know, needs and extra things on the checklist and extra resources that someone would need, you know, advance a, a week of medications, um, you know, some sort of evacuation plan that's fully accessible, um, uh, you know, a travel wheelchair in case you're in a true emergency mm -hmm. and you get tossed in the back of somebody's sedan, um, you know, uh, 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 communications networks, the list goes on um, for folks that, uh, you know, might be on benefits where they're not even allowed to have $2,000 in the bank and you're telling them to buy all of these extra resources and then they have insurance that won't give them a week heads up of medication. Um, right. that they're picking it up when they have two days left because that's what insurance will do. Um, it's 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 a really difficult catch-22 that so many members of the community are in. Um, I will say that, uh, uh, so that second part leads a lot of the community to tell government to, you know, fix this and quit telling us what to do to do personal disaster readiness on the other hand, I would say able-bodied folks need to do disaster readiness planning and get mm -hmm. resources together. And government isn't going to pick up every single able-bodied person. Um, and there's kind of uh, this thing where people with disabilities, uh, for the most part, have to do everything that able-bodied people need to do and then some. Right. So, you know, at the very least, uh, there could kind of be a reasonable argument that we need to, you know, do what we can to the equivalent of what an able-bodied person would do to prepare for a disaster and tweak it to be accessible. Um, I agree with so many of my friends and colleagues that government needs to figure out a way to pick up the slack mm -hmm. um, on the other hand. But yeah, there, there's, there is some responsibility um, to help yourself remain safe um, there's an unfortunate added responsibility because the system has left us behind. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, from the practical point of view to your listeners, um, there are really quite extensive checklists out there. Yeah. Um, on what's valuable for people with disabilities to put together. Uh, you know, uh, um, if you look at the general, uh, you know, what, what your state and federal government um, emergency services and say FEMA uh, provide for what should be on a personal checklist for able-bodied people, do that to the extent that you can. Um, and then there yeah, are other checklists out there for people with disabilities where you have added things on top of it. Right. Um, and if you can't do it yourself uh, entirely, see how much you can reach out to your network or even mm -hmm. expand your network and say, have people that are um, willing to come and knock on your door um, yeah. and check in. Um, and I think that uh, there are a lot of people that are your friends that will be willing to help. Um, right. Where When there's an absence of, of government support, um, it falls on communities and it falls on individuals. And I think we can all work together. That, that's amazing. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to go back to, cause you mentioned quite a few things and I want to make sure that the audience gets it. So there are a lot of checklists out there. Personally, I had help from my local fire department. 
and emergency services. So they helped me make sure that I pulled together everything that I needed. And if I were to call from my local home phone number, it rang up with all of my daughter's medical needs and her disabilities and all of that. So they would know that, you know, it was coming from, you know, this person's home and this person was disabled and had all these extra needs. So that was, that was really cool. Not every community has that, but that was my place to start. But you mentioned having a checklist together and some of the key things I just want to go back over. So um, making a crisis plan, including an evacuation plan is very helpful. Having a bag packed to go, you know, just being ready and those backup or emergency medications, even if you could only get a week together, that's helpful too. So you might have to have a conversation with your insurance company, but and we always have to have conversations with the insurance companies. Um, and then if you have a car, making sure that it's gassed up. And if you can afford it, buying a generator. I know for us, we were on care that required electricity. And if we lost electricity or we lost heat, we were in big trouble in a matter of hours with our daughter. So we needed to make sure that um, if we could get a generator going, great, but, and we never did buy one. We never were able to before she died, but we would always know where to go. So I worked out with my fire department that we were to come there to the local fire department, because if we had to, it was like eight blocks, but we could walk it if we needed to in a blizzard, you know? So that's the kind of planning that you're talking about. And um, I think you know, it's really hard to talk about these things. It's scary. And a lot of people are very overwhelmed with their day to day. But what's the very first step that people should take so that they can start feeling more in control? Uh, write things down and uh, give yourself a schedule to go through them. Right? Okay. You you don't have to knock out your entire disaster readiness plan this week. True. But if you can write down everything on the checklist that you just noted, um, speaking to a local fire department, um, um, I know you know seeing if your county has a two one one service. Right. There are all sorts of things that you can write down. Um, and make a checklist and see how far down that checklist you can get, even if it takes you months or a year, right? Um, uh, just keep returning to it, maybe have uh, uh, an accountability buddy um, that uh, can nudge you every now and then and say, hey, did you get anything off that disaster readiness checklist? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I always, I always find that's most useful for me. Yeah. Um, at a personal and professional level. Um, and that that's the first step. Um, I will say, you know, uh, climate change is really stressful. Mm -hmm. And um, it's okay to, to, to uh, be a little bit scared. Um, it's important that if you're feeling overwhelmed, that you try to find and build support networks, yes. even reach out to a counselor or a therapist. Yes. Um, 
uh, and uh, just get ready that way. Um, I will say, you know, uh, um, I'm uh, I'm also concerned long term, and I think that there's disaster readiness for the disasters that might hit you around the corner. Um, mm -hmm. The at the same time, people in the Pacific Northwest might have been relatively well prepared for floods and for heavy rain events and maybe even forest fires that are starting to hit more frequently mm -hmm. now um, and maybe earthquakes, right? Cause that's something that they're worried about, but they weren't prepared for the kind of extreme heat event that killed several hundred people last summer. Oh, good um, point. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, there are, um, I'm blanking on the government website that um, you can look up your area and see what kinds of potential climate impacts are going to happen down the road. Oh. Um, and uh, so go ahead and research that. Just search, you know, uh, Oregon climate forecast or something mm -hmm. like that. Right. And, and it will tell you, okay, wildfires, drought, uh, flood events, um, coastal flooding. Right. Um, and, there, you've got the things to be worried about and to start preparing for. Right. I, right. I'm sorry to tell your listeners to be worried about stuff, but you know, there, there's kind of the, the there, there's va there's value to to leaning on the side of the precautionary principle on all of these things. Yes, but you know, to to talk about the solutions as we are, your program day for tomorrow that's at sustain our abilities is all about what you were talking about a few minutes ago with making sure that your neighbors know you and know that you need help connecting with your local organizations and building that team and that framework. Um, I remember seeing a television show uh, called 911 emergency and there was a child on a ventilator who, when the power went out, when they had brownouts um, in California, the neighbors, only one neighbor had a generator, but they all talked to each other and they were able to grab like power cord after power cord after power cord and go like eight houses down to be able to keep this generator going because these parents were, you know, uh, using a portable, uh, you know, just hand um, machine to keep their child breathing. And it was so scary like but these this is real people i mean this happens you know and so it but knowing their neighbors saved that child's life and i was thinking about that as you were talking earlier so tell us a little bit more about that project and about that program what what do we do yeah i mean day for tomorrow um obvious it it's about building community um, it's about preparing for climate change in many of the ways that, um, similar ways that you uh, just put forward. We're, we're actually transforming um, the day for tomorrow and bringing it into uh, the Graham project, um, which is um, uh, named after uh, Mark Lee's late son, um, Mark Lee being the executive director mm -hmm. who was incredibly uh, dedicated to um, the outdoors uh, and the outdoors as a way to support um, uh, emotional and mental health, um, which, you know, for people 
with disabilities, certainly uh, mental health and emotional and mental health are really important and nature can be something to support that. So, um, you know, it, it's, we're, we're kind of redoing our programming a little bit. I will say that the day for tomorrow is going to be um, October 22nd and uh, the big, um, uh, our effort there is to provide resources to community members across the country and around the globe to put on their own awareness raising events um, and to put on their own community building events. And uh, it can be in whatever shape they want it to be uh, to raise awareness about climate change, to raise awareness about disability justice, to uh, build local disaster readiness plans and figure out which one of the neighbors is going to have mm -hmm. a generator, um, or simply to uh, uh, hang out with people with and without disabilities that don't frequently get to uh, go outdoors and get those health benefits of simply going to a local regional park or a lake. So um, uh, day for tomorrow is we're, we're not running the events. We're supporting communities that are putting on events that fit their community well. Yeah, that's great because it means that we all get to do what is natural to us individually in our small groups and in our communities. You are part of an amazing organization now. Sustain Our Abilities is pretty mind-blowing. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because it's, uh, it's wow. It's just wow. <laughs> yeah, I, it's really only a couple of years old, which I'm, I'm really impressed with what Mark Lee, our executive director, um, has done to uh, reach out and build a network. Um, uh, Mark Lee is a... A rehabilitation professional mm -hmm. and got interested in this topic uh, kind of from the, uh, the, the, the physiological impacts of climate change. Okay. Um, uh, you know, extreme heat hitting people with certain disabilities where they have, uh, uh, you know, limited thermoregulation, right, would be yes. the technical term, um, and uh, is already partnering or has already partnered with um, uh, an organization in Nigeria that is providing low cost uh, methods to deal with extreme heat. And that's going to people with spinal cord injuries. Um, so what Mark Lee has done is uh, put together a nonprofit, reached out to a bunch of different uh, rehabilitation professionals, people with disabilities, and community organizations domestically and internationally um, to uh, support events such as Day for Tomorrow, you know, awareness raising and community building events, um, as well as bringing together minds that can um, understand the dangers that are presented by climate change and figure out um, policy related and then low cost interventions to help people with disabilities um, manage uh, those stresses. Um, and now uh, we're increasingly going to work on uh, um, public education, putting on a series of webinars and producing educational materials for the public, um, as well as uh, supporting kind of more uh um year-round <laughs> efforts at 
uh, climate justice and community building. Um, so we're really looking forward to it. Um, some of the some of the um, um, efforts that we are expanding um, are also going to be uh, um, inclusive climate mitigation. Uh, so figuring out how to uh, ensure that um, uh, you know uh, regional development that's uh, low carbon regional development also ensures that all of the transportation and parks and transit-oriented housing and jobs work for people with disabilities, uh, mm -hmm. are accessible and, you know, say in the case of housing, has um, uh, designated affordable units that people with disabilities can go and live in. Um, that there are, uh, you know, we're, we're, we haven't yet committed to this, but this is a conversation that we're having, uh, is around in the long term doing things like hosting job fairs um, mm -hmm. where, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, renewable energy firms will come in and people with disabilities who are interested in this can kind of get in the belly of the beast, like we were right. talking about earlier. And um, number one, just uh, uh, um, make a difference in the world and then also hopefully change the culture inside of these mm -hmm. companies that are already making change at the broad level and help them make change in a way that that furthers disability justice. So um, we're really excited cool. about how this is going to grow in uh, the next year or two. Very, uh, very different cool. programs are being aligned. And you have so many countries represented in your group. You, you've got people from Greece and Norway and Canada and several countries in South America and Africa. It's just amazing. Yeah, and um, I think we have, you know, on on that front, we have a really good mix of people with disabilities that, uh, you know, are are researchers and organizers and community advocates. Um, uh, I mentioned earlier the project in Nigeria for mm -hmm. uh, people with spinal cord injuries to manage extreme heat. So. A lot of people doing great projects on the ground, and those are folks with and without disabilities, as well as uh, kind of researchers and folks that have uh, just libraries of knowledge inside of their yeah. heads on um, uh, the health of people with disabilities. Mark Elise started uh, a professional journal called Climate Change and Health, um, and uh, we are trying to find kind of a good healthy overlap between public health and disability rights um, because they're related. And we're so happy to have this broad international network with, you know, uh, over a half dozen countries uh, represented. I want to be a, a fly on the wall the next time you <laughs> all have a meeting, seriously, because it's just amazing. Um, so running out of time, of course. Um, and I so appreciate this. I don't know about you audience, but I'm just fascinated by this. And I'm so glad that it's getting some attention finally, because there's so much about this that is incredibly personal, but so important to every person with disability and their team that surrounds them. I just want to make sure that you all are not overwhelmed 
and that you know that you can eat this elephant in very small bites and listen to what Alex said and just take the first step and get started and start writing some things down. Keep a med list, you know, and then go to the next thing and the next thing and get an accountability buddy. That was great advice, Alex. So I'm going to have all of Alex's contact information for accessible climate strategies and sustain our abilities. And I'm going to have the disability scoop article posted. It is really um, so important to each and every one of us to pay attention to this. And I am so grateful that you are on top of this and that you're here to educate us and to help us move forward with change. So thank you so much, Alex. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I will say I'm not the only one and your listeners, you're not alone. Uh, actually the, uh, disability community was uh, finally recognized as a, um, a community of interest that can host uh, its own series of events at the uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change meetings, uh, which, uh, you know, yeah. is is one of them uh, created the Paris Agreement, right? Um, so people with disabilities from around the world are working on this. We're increasingly recognized um, at the domestic and international level. And there's just, um, I'm, I'm really hopeful in where the direction is going. And thank you for hosting this podcast and spreading the word. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Alex. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.